If there's ever a time when public health becomes sexy, becomes the thing to do, it's right after a pandemic. And that's because people really feel it when there's a failed public health response. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how clinicians can gear themselves up for a public health career, or at least do work that's public health oriented. How can we take the next step in thinking about our community, the population at large, the society that we serve, especially in light of this past pandemic year? So I'm Michael Shen. Here it is. What we do in the hospital is really the wrong toolkit for public health problems. And E. coli, H1N1, hurricane, West Nile virus. We're interested in having an impact at a population level, at a community, society level. I didn't realize I was public health minded until I had that aha moment. That by definition would mean a career in public health. Dr. Maria Carney never planned to become the commissioner of health for Nassau County. That's because she's actually a geriatrician and palliative care specialist by training. And when I spoke to her, I asked her how it all came to be. And I really, really was struck by your story. I want you to just tell our audience. I might get actually a little emotional about it, but I remember I was on my way to work. And at 8.50 in the morning, I got a page. You know, this was before cell phones are the way they are now. But I got a page from my husband and I recognized his work number. And so I was parking, I went in, I called him back, and it didn't go anywhere. It just ended. Um, I had just heard on the radio something was happening in New York City. The date? September 11th, 2001. And I hadn't heard until hours later what happened. I just turned around, I left work, I said, I have to go, I have to go home. I had to figure out where my kids were. My third child was a baby, two were in elementary school. And I just waited at home and waited and waited. About five hours later, he came in the door with debris all over him and told us the story of what happened. What were you feeling? Um, I remember such relief. Uh, I remember being just confused. I remember feeling guilty that he came home and many in my community, their significant others didn't. Part of me was uh, angry that he called his mother. (laughs) It didn't reach me, (laughs) I joke. Um, So it was uh, uh, life altering for me, my husband, my family um, and our community. I remember just kind of making a pact, you know, with God, with whoever, to say, all right, my family's healthy. I am going to dedicate myself to good things. And then next thing you know, our community was asking for people in healthcare to help with public health emergency. Would you help? And I said, all right, I'm going to help. This was like my deal. I'm going to give back in some way. So she started public health planning in her community. And other volunteers recommended she join the Medical Reserve Corps, which I'd never heard of, actually. It's pretty well known, a network of volunteers from medical and public health backgrounds. They're probably in your city or county, too. And her branch was organized by the Nassau County Department of Health, 
which she would later come to direct. And I found that I had a voice. Nobody was thinking about the older adult who was home, who maybe didn't have family, who couldn't drive. How are they going to get in a hurricane clean water? How are they going to make evacuation plans? So I found I had this voice for vulnerable people based on my background as a geriatrician and palliative medicine physician. And I think that's really cool. She's from a non-traditional background when it comes to public health. I mean, I also love palliative care, and it's cool to think that you can go from that to becoming commissioner of health. And now looking back years later, I've always been public health minded, population minded. I think that's why I went into the field of geriatrics, a growing aging population, policies that are needed to help us age and live independently and keep us from harm and safety and so forth. I didn't realize I was public health minded until I had that aha moment with my family. This idea of public health mindedness resonates with me. It makes me wonder, don't physicians have to be inherently public health minded? Thinking about the larger community and population that we serve, that kind of thing. And are clinicians, by the nature of what we do, providing public health? Well, the answer is not necessarily. How do you define public health? Public health is about improving the health and well-being of people at a population level. So your patient here is really the community, the society that you're interested in. This is Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm an internist, infectious disease specialist, and epidemiologist, as well as a medical journalist. And she's also on the Biden-Harris COVID-19 advisory board. And what she's saying is that public health is about serving groups of people. These groups can be as small as your local community or as large as countries and regions of the globe. And the thing is that clinicians play only a partial role in that larger system. One framework I found useful is to kind of see myself as a worker bee within the arm of public health known as a clinical delivery system or a health delivery system. So while clinicians do serve the public in a sense, most of us are treating individual patients at a time and thus not practicing public health. But as Dr. Carney says, it doesn't mean we can't practice in a public health-minded way. I remember when I was at the Department of Health, I was at a conference and I heard this neonatologist presenting. And this neonatologist, to protect his patients, implemented a flu vaccine program in his neonatal ICU. So he gave flu shots to the parents, the grandparents, the siblings, so that the babies, when home, were as safe as possible. And he followed those babies and found that his flu vaccine program improved their survival. That is a public health-minded neonatologist. He went beyond the individual patient. He saw a program, a pilot convinced leadership that this was important. He studied it. And he impacted the public's health without being part of the public health system. A number of us have probably dabbled or dived into systems-level change in our own institutions. But what are some concrete paths to a public health career? And this is kind of a selfish question because I personally am interested in a future in public health. And coming out of clinical training, I'm finding that I honestly don't know where to start. What's the lay of the land in terms of public health in America? It turns out it's an even more heterogeneous field than I thought. Now, you'll find different frameworks out there, but I've found it useful to summarize it into four buckets. The first being government-level organizations. The second is non-governmental organizations. The third is research-level infrastructure. And the fourth is actually media. So to start at the top, 
I think the largest bucket is government-level public health. I think when people think about public health, they're thinking about government. Which makes sense because public health is in service of people. Public service is a government function. And the largest government entity is the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees 11 organizations, some of which we're really familiar with, including the FDA, the NIH, CMS, Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the CDC. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where you're really analyzing trends at a population level. You're figuring out what's the burden of disease, what are the risk factors for that disease, who's affected and why. And besides the CDC, other common careers are at your local or state departments of health, which is where Dr. Carney eventually found her calling. But there are other ways to affect public health. And this is our second bucket, which includes non-governmental organizations. If you think of March of Dimes, if you think about AARP. Partners in Health or CARE or Family Health International would be another example. So a lot of these are private, nonprofit organizations. And then there's also community-based organizations. For example, the Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York City as a public health organization where they really historically have tried to to scale up testing, access to pre-exposure prophylaxis, to prevent HIV. So you have all sorts of community-based organizations. Some of them might, for example, work with women who've experienced domestic violence. Um, they might be working with people who have been formerly incarcerated. So there's a role to influence the public's health through those careers. It doesn't have to just be government public health system. And the third bucket actually consists of uh, the academic side, um, places where people do research for public health and population health. So, of course, there's academia. If you're interested in studying and analysis of the problems, understanding what the drivers are, academia is another great way to pursue a career in public health. And there's one arm of public health that permeates our daily lives, but may be overlooked. And that's our fourth bucket, the media. I do think of uh, medical journalism as another form of public health, where you're illuminating um, various health issues, communicating with the public. And if you think about, you know, how do you address these big systemic issues. A lot of that does occur through communication and information. And just having something published in the New England Journal of Medicine is great, but that's not going to have an impact on policy. It's not going to have an impact on how people vote or behave or any of that. And that's a great point. It's not making its way to the minds of the public or to policymakers for that matter, if it's just in the New England Journal. That's where public health expertise can really come in. And so if you want to see knowledge translated into action, you know, the the medical journalism piece is definitely um, an important one. So to summarize, the public health landscape of the U.S. includes one, government health departments at all levels, as well as federal agencies like the FDA and CDC. Two, a slew of non-governmental organizations ranging from private health delivery systems to nonprofits to community-based organizations. Three, academia or institutions that produce public health research. And four, media and medical journalism by which we communicate science to the public. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. 
with Factors that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. So now I want to take a step back and give you some practical tips for pursuing a public health career. What are the next steps for physicians who are solely clinically based mm -hmm. to kind of gear them towards a future in public health? I mean, I think the most obvious route is to do a degree in public health. A master's in public health or MPH is probably the most common degree that you're going to see. But what advantage does it give over the practical knowledge that I've already gained as a clinician? So you don't really learn that much in the way of epidemiology biostatistics in medical school. You might take a little bit of intro. And even in residency, it's about preparing journal clubs and applying that knowledge to specific clinical scenarios. And so the point here is to develop your analytical skills, your quantitative skills, especially about how do you collect data? How do you analyze data? What do you do with that data to inform public health work? And one sense that I got from speaking to some of my colleagues with MPHs is that curriculums really tend to vary. A master's of public health would include statistics, group dynamics, healthcare advocacy, environmental health, so nature, climate, uh, mosquitoes, uh, water, supply safety. And then you have more of the administrative side of things. With that, you get into questions of budgets and, and human resource management and those kinds of issues, which again, you don't learn any of those skills in medical school. And definitely not in residency either. Some related programs might include masters of public policy, public administration, or health administration. Another very common and spoken about path is the CDC's Epidemiologic Intelligence Service Program, or EIS. EIS is a more hands-on way of learning epidemiology, and you really do get sent on some of the cooler outbreak case investigation projects. So a lot of people who work at the CDC, as well as other federal agencies, have gotten their start through the EIS program. But if you can't be a disease detective, which is what they call EIS fellows in the movies, there are other fellowship opportunities out there. There's the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, as well as the National Clinician Scholars Program. But let me just say this. Look at your local institutions or health departments. There's probably a fellowship opportunity there. All you need to do is ask. I mean, I've seen other people take these fellowships up here at Northall. We have a physician administrative leader fellowship where you go around to the different entities of the health system to really understand how they're working. And if there's one thing I learned from Dr. Carney and Dr. Gounder, it's that there's nothing as valuable as some hands-on experience, even if it's not formal training or a formal degree. Even if it's just for two weeks, just to see how a department of health works is worthwhile. Different department of health 
Health have different responsibilities. They may have tuberculosis clinic, so you could rotate in that, the STD clinic, the HIV clinic. So I think trying to understand what are the different programs, what are your interests, and see if you can have an experience within one of those. In other words, find your own crash course. I don't think most people understand the breadth of a Department of Health and the importance of a Department of Health. My advice to young physicians are find their interest, find their passion, find their niche, that they can take that knowledge beyond an individual and learn how to influence groups. And if we draw from Dr. Carney's experience, maybe we should look at some of our own careers and see glimmers of that public health mindedness that she was talking about. I think for me, geriatrics provided that. It gave me a population-based approach. A lot of people didn't understand what a geriatrician is capable of, that I'm an internist, I knew policy, I knew advocacy. So I had to tell individuals that as a geriatrician, I'm really capable of this. I, I, I know how to do this. And here Dr. Carney alludes to one of the largest problems she sees in healthcare today, which is that the healthcare delivery arm and the public health arm are very separate from each other. And it's very hard to link them. So I, by chance, got an opportunity because of my experience volunteering with the Medical Reserve Corps that I was approached to throw my name in the hat to be Commissioner of Department of Health. I was not a traditional PAP, but what came out of it was once I was in the Department of Health, they in the public health system thought, oh, she's not public health trained or experienced. But I think what they saw was I had credibility with my colleagues, the frontline physicians, the community healthcare workers. She brought a linkage to hospitals and physicians into public health, which doesn't really exist. It often has to just be one path or the other. So I think the future of public health to be sustainable has to link with healthcare delivery better. And we haven't done that. The State Department of Health ultimately accepted Dr. Carney's two-year geriatrics fellowship as equivalent to a master's in public health. Which I proud to say two years in a population-based specialty should be recognized <laughs> as somewhat equivalent. So this wouldn't be a complete careers podcast if I didn't ask Dr. Carney what a public health job entails and what challenges come with it. Can you describe your job when you were at Nassau County? My role as commissioner was to run the Department of Health. That could be as simple as the bread and butter of public health, communicable diseases, environmental health, child maternal services. There was management of emergency response and emergency preparedness. It was talking to community organizations, trying to drive discussion or awareness of issues. So it sounds like the bread and butter is a lot of infectious disease, like foodborne pathogens, probably things like rabies and West Nile, as well as environmental stuff like air quality and water. And then also community advocacy and emergency preparedness. And this, she says, was all work that she loved. But there are some challenges and barriers to public health work as well. One of the struggles is some of the career paths keep you out of clinical work. I found in my first two years in that role, I was losing my clinical skills. You know, as a trainee, it is scary to think that I went through all these years of training and I'm proud of my clinical skills. I would be scared of losing them. 
So Dr. Carney ended up advocating for herself to be in the clinic again. Even if it's voluntary, pro bono, somehow keep your hands in it. And it feeds your ability to create policy because you're seeing the challenges people have with healthcare. The public health system needs to encourage people to stay clinically active because um, it links. It won't be such a divergence of the world of healthcare delivery and public health. We need to create linkages, liaisons along the way. So I think that's something that the public health system needs to work on. And another issue that a lot of us are probably aware of from going to the DMV and waiting in line is that government sometimes moves slowly. Local and state health departments sometimes do move less quickly than you would like. Uh, Some of that's also related to budgets. Unfortunately, public health has been really historically underfunded. Since the 2008 financial crisis, public health departments have suffered really massive budget cuts. And we've lost over 50,000 public health workers across the country since then. So when you have strapped budgets, when you are short-staffed, things are just not going to happen as quickly. You're not going to be able to do everything that you want to do as quick. And perhaps the toughest challenge of a career in public health is the limited funding, which means there are limited resources. And it's shrinking. Funding for public health has shrunken over the last 10 years dramatically. And it's actually COVID has been an example of a public health failure and that the response has been hospital based. That is so true. We're in a pandemic and for the majority of the country, it was hospitals that were the first responders for a public health emergency. So why is our health system that I'm in now really providing the public health role for our region? We've had a public health failure, and it's not a discredit to my colleagues in public health. They just have not been supported. We're not linking with healthcare delivery, and so we really need to rethink this. And I certainly hope, moving forward, that we'll invest more in our public health system. One thing that came up for me, especially with COVID, is the politicization of health. That seems like a difficult thing in my mind. I'm wondering how you approach that. Um, you know, it's an interesting one. because One final challenge I want to address today when it comes to public health is that of politics. Because I think sometimes in our training, we are told health is not political and we sometimes hide behind the science. And I think that's disingenuous because health is by definition political because you're talking about the distribution of scarce resources and you're talking about disproportionate impacts on different people. And that is political. That is distinct, though, from politicization, where you make something political where it did not need to be. So, for example, masks, you know, that is not inherently political. It was defined as a cultural symbol that made it political. So I think that distinction is important. You're dealing with a wide variety of individuals and politics and the very polarizing environment right now. If you like that, then you're built for it. But it can be overwhelming. But I think talking about politics head on is crucial. Doctors are known to be and historically have been apolitical. Just take a pre-2020 study that showed that doctors vote 9% less than the general population. And I think it's time to change that. It's harder and harder now to ignore the social and political context in which we work. 
especially with all the things that have happened in the past year with COVID-19. Well, I think whether it's as clinicians or public health workers, we bear witness. And not only do we bear witness, but we are often more empowered to speak up about what we see than our patients are for any number of reasons. And the sense that I got from speaking to both our discussants today is really that physicians are geared for advocacy and being able to take it to the next step in a public health career will help you make more impact. If you are interested in having an impact at a population level, at a community society level, that by definition would mean a career in in public health. You know, I think a lot of that has to do with what we find rewarding. Is it alleviating pain? Is it preventing disease? Is it fixing a condition? Or is it tackling some huge societal issue? You know, a friend once told me, it's sort of like force equals mass times acceleration. You have only so much force, and the bigger the mass you take on, the slower your acceleration is going to be. And so your time scales are going to be different. You know, doing a cardiac catheterization or an appendectomy on a patient is a much shorter time scale than addressing some of these huge public health issues, but then you're impacting many, many more people. And so I think it's really a question of figuring out what your personality is, what your values are, and and what makes sense to you. I love physics. Um, I think we should throw in the uh, the coefficient of friction in there somewhere. Yeah, actually, we should uh, broaden the metaphor. <laughs> so guys, why is now the perfect time for an episode like this on public health careers? Obviously, it's because we're living in what Dr. Fauci literally calls his greatest nightmare, a global pandemic. And I'm having all these feelings about what we could have done better in the past year. It makes me want to do something about it. So the next time something big happens, and it will happen, the next pandemic, I want to be prepared. I want to know that I've done something or have thought about the big picture. And I'm wondering if others feel the same way. So thanks for tuning in. I want to thank the American College of Physicians for partnering with us on this career series. And special thanks to supervising editor, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, co-producer, Sophia Kennedy, and Dr. Priyal Patel for the graphics. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 